0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church, or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Morning, church. It's good to be up here. Good to be up here. I was off for a couple weeks, and you let me back. It's a good sign. It's a good sign. Uh, so we're continuing our study today in Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and I want to get to it really quick because we've got a lot to cover. Um, but, but as you guys are turning there, which by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning and you uh, are not the type that you, you want to digitize your Bible, we have house Bibles in the end of each row. We would love for you to grab one of those and, and read along with us today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have access to a physical copy of God's Word, please just snag one of those, or even better yet, talk to one of our pastors, and we will get you one minus the coffee stains, because uh, we want to make sure that you all have access to God's Word. So we're in Mark chapter 6 today, um, and as you're turning there, I think it's cool to reflect on this. Pastor Craig talked about how we have a family of churches. Uh, this morning, already, and by already I mean like 12 hours ago, Uh, Our brothers and sisters in Mumbai at the gathering actually had a baptism Sunday. And so two new believers baptized, uh, publicly professing their faith in Christ. Really, really cool. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the sermon. But I wanted us to start there with this idea that, man, we are part of something bigger than a room in a middle school in West County. We are part of the kingdom of God, and God is living and active and moving and calling his children to him on every place on this planet. Uh, Here in West County, in St. Louis, in the midst of our comfort and affluence, and in Mumbai, India, in the midst of religious minority, and in uh, places in the Middle East and Asia where it is illegal and people are actively persecuted, God is moving Calling his people to him, and we have been invited to participate in that kingdom. What a blessing, amen. amen. So we are in Mark chapter six today, uh, and we're going to be doing something a little weird. So we're going to be starting in verse. Uh, our passage today starts in verse fourteen. I'm actually going to read the last part of last week's passage. We're going to start in six verse seven, but our our main text today starts. In, uh, in 14 and goes through 29. And the reason we're doing this is this. We've talked several times in our time in Mark about this, this theological concept called the Markin sandwich, right? Which is just a great theological term. I love the idea that at some point, somewhere, a seminary professor was like, people are going to be talking about this phenomenon for years. Let's call it a sandwich. That way pastors can stand in front of their congregation. With total conviction, say that today's passage is a sandwich. But anyway, uh, Mark, Mark, uh, he constructs the book in such a way where oftentimes he tells a story and then he pauses and tells another story in the middle of the first story and then ends the story. Right? So the kind of this A B A setup. And what happens is the middle story provides an interpretive lens. For the larger story that, that kind of sandwiches it in. In fact, Mark does this, we're not, we're not gonna talk about this and our study of Mark much because it, it gets like way into the weeds. But Mark actually doesn't just do A, B, A. Sometimes he does A, B, C, B, A, which just gets like, man, Mark, come on. Like, we've only got... 40 minutes on a Sunday. But, but you get, you get what I'm saying. So our text today is the center of the sandwich. It's the meat in the middle. And, uh, it's, 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 it's surrounded by this Jesus, Jesus is sending out of his 12 to do ministry. So last week when Pastor Craig taught at the very end of the text, there's this part right where Jesus is essentially rejected by his home community. And then after that, he sends out his followers to participate in his work he commissions them to go and preach the word and to cast out demons and to heal people who are sick and he sends them out to do that and then we get our story and then at next week we're going to talk about how they come back and they're all stoked and excited and Jesus gathers them together and that's where we have the famous story the feeding of the 5,000. Every time we've hit one of these sandwiches and mark up to this point we've handled it in one sermon but the body of text is so large that, that we've kind of divided. It up a little bit. And so I wanted to make you aware of what we're doing and that we're looking at this text today that really serves as an interpretive lens for a text we've already read and the text we're going to engage next week. And so I would strongly encourage you guys in your personal study over the course of this week to engage this a little bit. Look at the text we're studying today and actually actually contemplate on how it speaks into the text we've already been in and the text we're going into. Because there's just a lot of meat on the bone here. But We're going to start, just to put it in context, in verse 7. So the 7th verse of the 6th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark tells us this. And he, being Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then this begins today's text in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for what you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist and laid it in a tomb, and this is the word of the Lord. What a bummer, right? What a bummer of a story. Uh, it's interesting. There's only there's only two stories in all of Mark that don't center on Jesus, and this is one of them. And it's a real bummer of a story. We uh, every week we do this this what we call a preaching collective where uh, the leaders and pastors and staff from our different churches. Get together in a meeting and on a Skype call and we, we study the text for Sunday morning together to allow the different leaders to speak into uh, the sermon prep. And I was, I was so intrigued. One of the things we kind of always start the meeting with is we just say, Hey, what stands out to you in this text? Where do you see the gospel? Where do you see Jesus in this text? And Pastor Saju, our, our lead pastor in, in Mumbai just said, man, I'm going to be honest. I have a hard time seeing the gospel in this text. It just, seems like a story about how awful and sinful the world is. He's like, I just see a ton of bad stuff happening. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of taken me aback. And, and that's kind of how the text hits you at first, right? Like you read it and you're just like, man, this is terrible. This is just a godly guy who didn't do anything wrong and a bunch of sinful, debaucherous, idolatrous people killed him for no good reason. End of story. <clears throat> right? That's kind of, that's kind of what you're left with. And I, I think I think that's actually a good place to be with this text. I think there's some there's there's two things we're gonna point out from here that's gonna be really good for us, and I think it's gonna lead us to some teaching of Jesus. But I think starting at this place of this text where you just go, that's an awful story, is a really good thing. It's gonna get our hearts, I think, in the right posture to see what God is actually pointing us out pointing out to us here. And so we start with this idea that this is kind of just a bummer of a story, right? John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets, the prophet greater than any other according to Jesus, is imprisoned and dies alone because of what essentially amounts to a drunken bet. That's not good. So let's walk back to this story. I'm going to kind of bullet point it for us really quick. And then, and then we'll draw out two specific things from this, and we'll, we'll see where it takes us. I, I think I, I do have to... Uh, I'm, I promise right now I'm not making fun of Matt giving a serious confession on his sermon like three weeks ago. Matt, I promise I'm not making fun of you. But I do, like Matt, have to give a confession about this text before I preach it. This is not the first time I've publicly engaged this text. <laughs> One time when I was in high school, or not high school, I was in middle school, uh, I I was in the drama team at my church youth group, and it was, it was as lame as it sounds. Uh, but <laughs> they gave an assignment where you were supposed to write a poem about a passage of scripture that was impactful to you. And I was in middle school, so you can guess how seriously I took that assignment. Because I thought it was the dumbest thing on earth. And so I picked this passage. It was supposed to be something like that you you know actually engaged the gospel in, but I picked this passage and essentially made a limerick about it and um, I tried really hard to find it, so I could read it to you guys this morning because i it 's really bad and and i wanted I wanted you to to have fun mocking me as a child, but uh, i couldn 't but I do have the final line of this limerick burned in my soul for all eternity. So I am going to share this with you guys really quick so that you can share with me in my judgment. Uh, It went something like this. If you're a prophet in court, you better watch what is said because eventually you'll notice your head drop to the floor like a sack of lead and by then it's too late, you're already dead. So, I'm sorry for that. Uh, It would have been dishonest. I would have been tantamount to lying to you guys if I did. (laughs) I'm sorry, sorry, Matt. Anyway, (laughs) uh, anyway, I want to point out two things from this text. I think it'll be good. It's going to lead us to some teaching of Jesus and, and and a couple hard challenges for us today. So essentially what happens in our story is this. Jesus has sent out his his followers to be a part of the kingdom work, right? He's given them his authority. He said, go out, proclaim repentance, proclaim the coming kingdom, call people to, to give their lives over to the work of God, heal the sick and cast out demons. And they do. And so they travel around doing the same work Jesus is doing. We don't talk about that often, but Jesus' closest followers are sent out and His work begins to expand. It's not just this traveling rabbi, this one guy going from city to city in Galilee. We're talking about dozens of groups of people going from village to village throughout Galilee, proclaiming the same message that we heard in Mark 1. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Right? And they're backing up this claim. God is doing something new. The something new is here. You can be a part of it. Repent and believe. Dozens of people are now scattering out and proclaiming this and backing up this claim by doing miracles. Walking into villages and casting out demons and healing the sick and proclaiming repentance and inclusion in the kingdom of God, this is starting to create a stir. Remember, we've talked about Mark. We're kind of shifting our perspective to say Jesus' ministry is now becoming intentionally pointed toward the cross. The things Jesus is is doing now are leading him on an unavoidable collision course with crucifixion. And this is part of it. Jesus' ministry is getting a larger and larger audience, not just amongst local religious leaders and not just amongst the mob of poor people who want to take from him, but now political leaders and Roman officials are starting to notice what Jesus is doing. And so as this becomes the talk of Galilee people start to ask who is this Jesus what is the deal and we we hear that right there's famous passages Jesus says who do people say I am these rumors about Jesus are already moving around well he's Elijah returned there was an idea in uh, in, in Jewish in Jewish culture that Elijah would return as a prophet of Israel before the Messiah if you remember Elijah didn't actually die he got to ride the fire chariot up to heaven, and so there's this idea that man, Elijah will return, and that'll be the heralding of the coming Messiah. And some people said, no, 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 this is John the Baptist returned from the dead. He was one of he. He, he was the first great prophet since the days of old, and he got killed. And so this is him come back, and he's doing even more work. And people are like, no, 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 the age of the prophets has returned. John the Baptist is dead, but now we have another prophet, this guy Jesus, who's doing... And so there was all this stuff going around, and it makes its way to King Herod. And Herod says, oh shoot, this is definitely John the Baptist come back from the dead because I killed him. So he has, right, like, he has a little bit of bias going on in this story. He's he's going, oh shoot, I killed John and now he's back and now he's not just preaching, he's also healing people. This could get bad. And then it goes on to tell us the story of how and why he killed John. Now before we jump into that, I want to give you like a really, really quick history lesson of the political atmosphere of Palestine at this point in in history. So Herod is a confusing name in the New Testament because there are several Herods over several sets of years. And so the Herod we're talking about in this passage is Herod Antipas, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king over all of Palestine at the time of Jesus's birth. So the stories about Herod in the Christmas story, right, the evil king who tries to trick the Magi, who's paranoid and kills all the kids in in, uh, uh, Bethlehem, like that Herod is Herod the Great. And the picture painted of him in Scripture is not so great, but he's actually a really important historical figure. Herod the Great was placed over Palestine, which included basically most of Israel. He was placed over Palestine by Roman authority. And the interesting thing about Herod was that he was Jewish. And so Herod saw his reign over Israel as messianic in nature. What what he kind of saw his, his reign as is he said, I am taking my people and I am making them culturally relevant in the day of the Roman Empire. I can modernize Israel. I can make us a province to be noticed amongst this Roman Empire. And he actually succeeded he built several really important coastal cities along the mediterranean he built up jerusalem into a world power city and he also built a thriving industry between the sea of galilee and the mediterranean sea the dude was actually politically a genius he modern i mean he brought plumbing to jerusalem he he really did like he made palestine an important province in in the roman empire to the point that he became noticed And he became respected. And so he looked at this kind of Hellenization, this Romanizing of Palestine, and said, this is the way of salvation. This is how Israel becomes important again. Look at me, I am like a Messiah. So when Jesus is born... And there's a king of the, you know, he gets upset. And and he's famous for his cruelty and his paranoia. He killed most of his family to keep them from taking his power. He brutally murdered tons of people all over his kingdom. He also built the temple in Jerusalem, right? So like a weird mixture of thoughts and worldviews in Herod the Great. When Herod died, the Roman officials did not trust any of his sons to actually continue on his work because that, by that point, Palestine was actually important. And so they divided up Palestine into four sections and divided it between three of Herod's sons and then one section became essentially like kind of, kind of a bit of a democracy. You can look, if you have any kind of study Bible, in the back there'll be some kind of map it's like Palestine in the time of Jesus, something like that. And that's worth looking at at some point, uh, because what you see in the time of Jesus is that Palestine was divided into four kingdoms. You had the Decapolis, which was, for the most part, democratic. You had um, the main part, like the, the um, I can't remember the name of it, the, the southern, southwestern part of the kingdom that included Jerusalem. This was ruled by one of Herod's sons for all of like three months. The minute he arrived, all the political leaders were like, this guy's crazy and evil. We don't want him. And uh, the Roman emperor deposed him and put an, uh, a governor in place, which set the stage for Pilate to be in charge of that part of Palestine for Jesus' trial. But Galilee, Galilee and Perea, these two chunks, so northwestern Palestine and southeastern Palestine, those two chunks, Galilee and Perea, go together, and those are under the rule of Herod Antipas, who saw him, saw himself as the continuation of his father's work. He had less power, less authority, but he saw what he was doing as a messianic sort of king. I am keeping Israel relevant on a global scale by doing, doing things the way the Romans say we have to do them, but still protecting our culture and so you have this guy who's brutal and ruthless and incredibly licentious murders and kills and lies and steals to maintain and keep his power and yet he holds on to his jewish heritage he poured tons of money into sustaining the synagogue system in galilee which by the way created the outlet for Jesus's ministry. Jesus traveled from city to city preaching in the synagogues, a lot of which were paid for by Herod Antipas, this this evil dude. And so to get that's kind of to give you the picture, this Herod is an interesting character. Herod Antipas I think is even a more interesting character because he has so little actual power and authority and yet such grandiose ideas of his ability to essentially continue Israel's uh, uh, divine heritage, right? He, he's an interesting character, to living totally given over to the passions of the flesh and to his own evil desires, and yet seeking to hold on to his religious and spiritual heritage at the same time. He's an interesting character. So, he has John the Baptist, this prophet, arrested. He has him arrested because he had decided, uh, he had wooed his sister-in-law into divorcing his brother, who's Philip the Tetrarch, who rules that northeastern section. He had wooed his sister-in-law, who was also his niece, into leaving his brother and marrying him. I know, kind of soap opera-ish, right? And so she moves in with him and uh, brings her daughter with her. And actually, uh, he had to divorce his wife, who was uh, the princess of Nabatia, which caused an internal war in Palestine, which got him deposed. But anyway, he's a mess. He He woos his sister-in-law. She divorces his brother and marries him, moves in with him. And John the Baptist, being a Jewish prophet, looking at this king who claims messianic ministry, who claims to be a representative of God's covenant on the global scale and he calls him out for his hypocrisy and says, you are no king of Israel. You are violating the law. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That is adultery and that is incest. Those are, those are condemned by the law. You, you are a hypocrite. He calls him out. Uh, which makes them angry and makes the wife angry and so they have him arrested and placed in his fortress in southern Perea, uh, very, like down, down close to where the, the Dead Sea meets the Jordan River in the southern part of Palestine. Has him in prison there and he stays there for a long time. And he, his life becomes this weird mixture of rotting in a prison cell and starving because at that point in time in, in these kind of Roman prisons, you were imprisoned, but there was no care. If people didn't bring you food and clothes, you just starved to death. And so John's followers are taking care of him. And every now and then, Herod will call him to court to hear him preach or teach or expound the scriptures. And I love this description it gives where it says, Herod was perplexed by what John taught, but heard him gladly. Herod has this weird relationship with John. He knows he's holy. He knows he's a prophet. And something in him, in his Jewish heritage, says this man is important. And so he hears him. He listens to his teaching. But it perplexes him. He doesn't engage it fully. And there's this tension where his wife wants him to kill John, but he won't do it. And it's this whole back and forth. And we know how the story ends, right? Right. Herod has a big blowout birthday party for himself, invites all his generals and all his officials, and has his stepdaughter slash grandniece come out and do some erotic dancing for everyone, uh, who little little wasted, they enjoy it a ton. They, he tells her he'll give her some grand gift because of how good her dancing was. She, uh, via her mom, asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter, as dramatic as only a teenage girl could do, uh, and he grants the request, not because he wants to, but because everyone's watching and I can't look weak or I can't go back on my word in front of all my bros. So he kills John the Baptist, has his head cut off, delivered on a platter. John's followers hear about it and they bury his body. And that's kind of the story, right? I want us, I want us to look at two aspects of this story. We're going to look at Herod and we're going to look at John the Baptist. We've already talked about why Herod is so interesting in the story, but I think this is actually going to have bearing for us as we as we think about how we engage this John the Baptist or, or Herod is is this torn character, right? He's divided between his heritage, his his Jewishness and also his success, his power, his Roman governorness, right? He sees John as a holy man. He knows he's a prophet. He gladly hears him teach. And yet he's perplexed. And yet he lives his life totally given over to his flesh. Right? I mean, we can, we can debate the political benefits of the Herods being in power and God's sovereignty over that. But when it comes to character, can't imagine that being a relevant discussion today about Character and competency and political leadership. I don't know. I better back off that one. Uh, but when it comes to his character, I mean, Herod's a dirtbag. He, he couldn't be any worse. He lies, he kills, he steals, he murders, he's ruthless. He, um, he is sexually deviant. He woos his own sister-in-law, right? He commits adultery and, and all this different stuff. Just could not be any more debased, any more given over to the passions of his flesh. And yet, he won't let go of his his heritage, his faith heritage. Something in him still wants to be this Jewish king. He wants to hear the teachings of this prophet. He wants to engage it. But he leaves John's presence perplexed. Beloved, this is the image... Of the seed sown among thorns. This is the image of, of Mark chapter 4, where, where Jesus says to us, right? When, when he explains the parable, this is in verse 18 of chapter 4. Others are ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is Herod. He has every opportunity to actually represent God's people on a global scale. Think about that. He has been handed authority and power and a platform within the Roman Empire. And he has every opportunity to use that to the glory of God and the benefit of his people. But he is totally given over to the desires of this world, to the passions of his flesh, and the word of God is choked in him. It bears no fruit. He hears it gladly but he leaves perplexed. Beloved, I wonder how many of us need to go nowhere past this story beyond the person of Herod. I wonder how many of us this morning need to stop right here and reflect on how much our lives actually mirror Herod's life over John the Baptist. Right? Here's a man given privilege and platform and opportunity And yet he is so given over to this world, so given over to the passions of his flesh, that he can do nothing for the kingdom. He cannot even engage his own heart in the truth of the gospel, much less use his authority for anything of any benefit to anyone but himself. Beloved, this should be a stern warning to us. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus said that. You will, you will either love the one and despise the other or vice versa. You cannot firmly grasp a hold of the love of this world and its comforts and its pleasures and your heart's longing for sin and also grasp a hold of this beautiful free kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming. There's not enough room in your hands You can't. You can't hold both of them at the same time. Herod is the picture of this. Beloved, some of us this morning need to do nothing beyond repent of our love for this world. We need to understand the thorns that are growing so deeply in our hearts that chokes out the Word of God and our engagement in His kingdom. That's piece one piece two, let's look at John the Baptist. It doesn't get better from here. (laughs) So John the Baptist, John is such an interesting character and such a contrast to Herod Antipas. John the Baptist, as in Jesus's own words, is one of the greatest men in human history faithfully given over to the work of the kingdom. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. He comes and proclaims God is coming, something new is happening. Jesus calls him the greatest of all the prophets, one of the greatest men in human history, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was so influential in Palestine, he made his way into secular history books. There's actually more words given to John the Baptist in secular history books from this period than given to Jesus. It's actually really interesting in terms of his immediate impact on the world. John the Baptist blew up Palestine. Because prophets were, for the most part, unheard of in that day. And John the Baptist shows up and he starts a movement among God's people. Repent and believe God is doing something new. You can be a part of it. This is John the Baptist ministry. Faithful proclamation of the coming kingdom and your invitation to participate. I, wanna, I want us to reflect for just a minute on John's own words. This is in John chapter 3. If you actually want to turn there really quick. John says something really interesting. He sees Jesus. And his own followers are essentially uh, essentially complaining to him, saying, John, don't you see this, this new guy Jesus is preaching and people are leaving you and going to him? And John answered, this is in verse 27 of John chapter 3, John the Baptist answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. This is John's perspective on his authority and his platform and his position as a prophet. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is a testimony. This is John the Baptist's evaluation of Jesus' ministry. I'm so excited he's finally here. Everyone go to him. He must increase. I must decrease. What a powerful testimony of a life fully given over to the work of the kingdom. Amen? This is why Jesus says with clear conviction the greatest of the prophets, greatest of the prophets, John the Baptist, look at the purity of his heart and his ministry. He must increase. I must decrease. Uh, uh, the, The best man gets excited when the groom shows up. He doesn't get sad that the attention goes to them. He gets excited. This is my excitement. Jesus is here. He's claiming His bride. I just get to celebrate. He must increase. I must decrease. Man, that's powerful. My question is this. Do you think He knew how much he would decrease, that Christ might increase? Do you think he foresaw, as a prophet of God, his, his numbers, his authority, his followers dwindling down and down and down, and his public authority shifting from this mover and shaker who was recorded in the annals of human history to a lonely man in a prison cell starving to death, being called out to stand before an unrighteous, sinful king who greatly hears him but doesn't engage anything he says, paraded out to teach someone with closed eyes and closed ears? Do you think he foresaw the hunger, the desperation, the the death of his ministry and his authority of everything he'd given his life to, right? We even see in Matthew's telling of the gospel where John loses so much hope as he's isolated in this prison that he actually sends followers to go to Jesus and to say, please just tell me I haven't wasted, are you actually the Messiah? Like, tell me that I didn't get this wrong, that I haven't wasted my life. Because he's, He didn't realize, right? Like he's decreased so much. This man who had faithfully obeyed God, who had forsaken the comforts of this world, that he might be obedient to the kingdom, is rotting away in prison by himself with no relief. And so he sends his followers to say, Jesus, is this really how it's supposed to go? Are you really him? Did I miss it? And Jesus' response is, tell him what you see. The death here, the blind see, and the good news of the kingdom is proclaimed to those who need to hear it. That's the hope that Jesus gives to John is, well, look, look at the fruit. I know this isn't what you expected, but look at the fruit. The dying and the hurting are hearing good news. And that's, that's like the answer John gets. He doesn't get, man, I love you, John. Stay strong. I'm praying for you. He doesn't get, keep, keep the faith, brother. God will do something with you. God will redeem this. No. He must decrease as Jesus increases. Do you think John foresaw the fruit and faithful labor of years of ministry culminating in a sword and a platter from a drunken bat? Man. Man. Man it seems like such a loss. Does it not? A life so fully given to the work of the kingdom to end thus? But beloved, John understood something that many of us don't. He understood that to be given to the kingdom is to step away from the pleasures of this world. To, to live a life starving and isolated in prison only to be beheaded for a stupid, unjust reason seems like such a loss. Seems like such a waste. But for John, this was the ultimate victory. For John, who had given his life so fully to the kingdom, who had trusted God with so much of his person, a man who could truly join with the apostle and say, to live is Christ, to die is gain." For John, the loss of his life was the gain of his victory. Step forth into eternity, into into blessing, into intimacy with Christ. John celebrated the coming of Christ because he understood that the kingdom is not of this world that the victories are not of this world, that the pleasures of this world are fleeting. John, when he gave his life to the work of the kingdom, understood and molded his life around the truth that some treasures rot and rust and some do not. And John left this world with nothing in the rusty savings account. Everything of his life was fully given to the eternal things of the kingdom. Beloved, this is the contrast between Herod and John. Herod is the living embodiment of seed sown among thorns. All this potential, all this opportunity to be a force for the kingdom, but so given over to the flesh that he is remembered at most as an evil political leader who got expelled for doing evil stuff. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who died alone, cold and hungry, an unjust death with no comfort, with no friends surrounding him, with no family or grandchildren. This John the Baptist is remembered as the one whose life was given to the kingdom. This John is the one who is currently celebrating the beauty and the power of the kingdom of God fully enjoying the treasure that does not rust, that does not decay. This is the tension we're given in this story. And and by the way, to, to give you a larger context, this is the image that Mark is handing to, to his listeners to, to put context around the larger story of Jesus' followers partaking in the work of the ministry. Right? He, he paints the story of one of the most sold-out men, one of the most active participants in the kingdom, the person who, who we would say, when it comes to giving your life to the work of Jesus, if there's an A+, plus, like if there's a dude who like sets the curve, it's John the Baptist. And Mark says, cool, yeah, yeah. Look what happened to him. He died alone and cold and hurting. That's the fruit of His faithful ministry to the kingdom. So when you read this story about these people going out two by two and proclaiming the kingdom and doing miracles, and it gets you all hyped up, remember where that actually leads. Because honestly, that's where the story goes. You follow out the lives of the apostles, you go through Acts, you go into early church history, it didn't go well for them. <laughs> They were killed, murdered, tortured, had their families killed in front of them, sawed into pieces, burned alive, fed to wild animals. Matthias was eaten by cannibals. This is the fruit born by faithful participation in the kingdom. Welcome to church, everybody. (laughs) That's heavy. That's heavy. That's why I believe... Jesus tells us to count the cost. All right, I I want to read a passage, to you guys, from Luke. This is in Luke chapter. Oh shoot, where is it? Mm-hmm. Fourteen, I believe. Yeah, here it is. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he has is able Able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Beloved gospel pursuit of the kingdom of Jesus will cost you a lot. And I mean that. I know that's not necessarily a popular, happy thing to say. But this is the message of our Jesus. Repent. Believe. The kingdom is at hand. God is doing something new. You can be a part of it. It's awesome. But it will cost you. You have to actually give yourself over to this. Because the kingdom of God is in direct opposition to the kingdom of this world. Because the way of the Gospel, the way of our Jesus, is not the way of this world. And if you want to give your life to the way of Jesus, there are parts of your life that are already given over to this world that must be sacrificed, that must change, that must die. And it is costly. I, can't, I don't want to sugarcoat that for you. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus has called you to die unto yourself, to give yourself fully to the kingdom, to sacrifice all else for the sake of the treasure that does not rust. That's what Jesus has called us to. And that's a lot. Pastor Jeff always used to say, Jesus doesn't want to be first in your life as though you had a series of drawers and he just wants to be the top drawer. No, Jesus is the context for your life. He's the chest you put the other drawers in. Jesus demands the entirety of your person if you want to be given over to his kingdom. That's a weighty call. And you should consider it. You should chew on that should not take that lightly. This is one of the greatest dangers. We are so blessed as a free church. Beloved, I don't know how often you reflect on that, but as a free church, as as the church in North America that experiences social and political religious freedom, we are the minority throughout church history. The majority of our brothers and sisters in the world right now And the majority of our brothers and sisters throughout all of human history do not experience freedom in their religion. They experience persecution and suffering and hurt. They pay a price for their faith. It's such a gift. But the greatest danger of the free church is that we have the opportunity to be nominal Christians. We have the opportunity to claim Christ with our mouths, to hold on to a spiritual heritage, but to give ourselves fully to the passions of our flesh. We can live as Herod, and no one will stop us. That is the danger of the free church. Beloved, if you are in the persecuted church, you don't do that. Because it's not worth it. It's not worth it. If you want to hold on to Jesus but also live for your flesh, and holding on to Jesus is going to get you beaten, tortured, killed, hurt, you're not going to do it. But we can do that. May we stew in the danger that represents for our souls. May we not take lightly the temptation that Satan has placed in front of us. Beloved, submission to the kingdom means submission of your life. And we do not like that. That pushes all our buttons as as independent Americans, right? Submission to the kingdom means that Jesus demands supremacy over your understanding of your family. Jesus demands supremacy over your love for your wealth. Guys, submitting to the kingdom of God means that you will submit your understanding of your paycheck to Jesus. It means you will submit your understanding of your sexuality and your sexual ethics to Jesus. It means you will submit your understanding of your ethics of family and relationship and workplace ethics and politics to Jesus. That costs a lot. But the upshot of it is that really that stuff doesn't matter. Beloved, this is the message of our Jesus. Not, not that, hey, you want to follow me? It's really terrible. No, no, no. The message of our Jesus is yes, you must give up your life, but I promise you what you give up doesn't actually matter. Come on. What you give up, it, it fades away, it rots, it burns, it rusts, it's nothing. How many of you care at all about how wealthy Herod Antipas was? How many of you care in the slightest bit how good of food he ate, how many friends he spent time with, and how many sexual encounters he had? What about his politics? What about his, his ethics? None of those things matter. They have rotted away to dust. You can go to Israel and you can see ruins of some buildings he built. None of them are doing anything anymore. This is everything the world has to offer. Dust and ruin and rust. But beloved, our sweet Jesus offers us a kingdom that is eternal. A life that is real, that does not fade. An abundance and a freedom that never passes away. This is the gospel. That the treasure offered by Jesus lasts. That what this world has to offer is nothing in light of it. Beloved, may we be a people who who actually weed our hearts. May we pluck those thorny bushes that, that choke out the power of the word in our life. And may we give ourselves fully to the kingdom. May we count the cost of actual submission, of actual giving our lives over, of not living a nominal cultural Christianity because that's acceptable, but actually giving ourselves to the work of Jesus, to things that actually matter, that actually have eternal significance. May we do that. Because the stuff we're striving for, the stuff that seems so important, Man, it just rots. It's nothing. It's nothing. How many of you know how much money your great, great, great grandpa had in the savings account? It's nothing. It it doesn't last. Why would we give ourselves over to meaningless labor when the kingdom has been handed to us free. Beloved, take, eat, participate. You are invited. This is the, the offer of our Jesus. May we be a people that count the cost and gladly pay it. I'm going to end with a story and then we're going we're to pray. We, uh, I said this morning that it was a baptism Sunday at the gathering. I'm gonna, we, uh, can you put that picture up on the screen? This is Mazar, he was baptized this morning in Mumbai, India. He's been invited into the kingdom. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Um, he, up until this morning, was a Muslim imam. He was a pastor in the Muslim church. And Jeff and Saju have been meeting with him for several months, on and off, even before the Neville's moved there. They've been meeting with them, uh, with him, chatting, going through the Gospel of Mark together, talking, going back and forth. And this last week, when they met, uh, he sat with them and he said, man, I I, I know the gospel is true. I know Jesus is my Savior. I know I want this. I'm, I'm ready to give my life over to the kingdom. I'm ready to be baptized. I'm ready to participate. How beautiful. We can celebrate that. But hear this. He told them this a good long while after he arrived at this conclusion. He spent many weeks Chewing on that conviction and thinking about it. Because he was counting the cost. He's a pastor in the Muslim community. Like, he the minute he stepped into that water to be baptized, he lost his livelihood and his and his income, and all of his academic training became useless. Not to mention the fact that he will certainly be disowned by his entire family and his entire faith community who he's been around his entire life. Now Mumbai is a, is a huge city and they experience a lot more religious freedom than large parts of India, but the reality is his life is, has a very real danger over it. There are large groups of people in India who will have no qualms about killing him inside, on sight. And that is real for the rest of his life. If he wanders into certain areas of the city or goes to certain villages, he will die for being baptized and professing Christ. And he will die separated from his family and separated from his friends. That is a very real choice that one of our brothers in Christ made last week. And he was baptized this morning while we were all asleep. Praise be to God that our brother has been included in the kingdom that we will, that we will share with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Amen? Amen? But beloved, how many of us, if we are honest, have counted the cost of participation in Christ like our brother has? How many of us, if we were honest, if we were handed the same price tag for our salvation as our brother was, how many of us would give that a few weeks pause and then submit to baptism? Beloved, I don't say that to make us feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel like garbage. I want to celebrate our brother. There was another baptism too. It was a guy who had been in the church for a while he grew up in a Christian family. And all I could think was, man, that would be the worst Sunday to get baptized on if you were that guy. <laughs> <laughs> the other This guy's like, I might die. And then he gets dipped and you're like, well, I don't know, I just... I've loved Jesus a long time. I just thought it was time to do it finally. I'm going to go. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I don't want you guys to feel punched in the stomach and just like guilted by this. But man, may we open our hearts to the conviction of the Spirit. Beloved, Don't don't, don't kid yourself. Let's not sit in this room and lie to ourselves until we can leave and kind of be made comfortable again, let's actually acknowledge the fact that most of us in this room model our lives much closer to Herod Antipas than we do to John the Baptist. Let's be honest about that this morning, because there's no point in lying about it. Because your Jesus is still sweet, and He still loves you, and He still invites you to repentance and giving yourself to the kingdom. Beloved, imagine if this community was fully given over to the work of the kingdom. That the cares of this world lost their pleasure. That the treasures of this world lost their shine. And this group of people fully gave themselves over to the work. Imagine the eternal significance of that. Oh Jesus, we pray that you would do this work in our hearts. Jesus, may you convict us. May you shine a painful spotlight on the thorns that we tend and care for as precious in our hearts. God, may you shine a stark light on the garden of our hearts, the things that that we tend and keep and hold sacred that choke out your word in our lives. God, may we be a people who count the cost, who see the immense value of the treasure offered to us, and who actually give ourselves over to it. May we not be a people who build half a tower and run away. May we be a people who actually submit every area of our lives, no matter how painful and no matter how sacred, to your truth. Jesus, we cannot do this without you. It was your work on the cross that made the kingdom significant, and it is your call in our hearts that allow us to actually forsake our flesh and love you. Jesus, do this work in our hearts. Convict us and change us. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Beloved, here's what we're going to do. I want to encourage you to take a few minutes and reflect on this passage with Jesus. I would love for you to actually ask Him what thorns in your heart you cultivate that choke out the Word, what areas of comfort you seek above His kingdom. We're going to give ourselves a few minutes just to sit and pray over this. There's actually a microphone right here if you feel led by the Spirit to pray over our church today. I would invite you to come up and do that. We'll take a few minutes for this and then we will close out our time in worship together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit RedTreeChurch.com for more information.